that are online. That wasn't Don Schumann that had the heart attack, but a coworker of Emily Players. So just in case there might be some worries online there. Um, don't always get the, the interaction that's out here in the sanctuary. But it is good to see you this morning. I hope that your week went well. Um, I would say for me, my week was up and down. Had some deep lows, some mediocre highs. And you know, you kind of have weeks like that. You have those times to where you have to grow through some things. Um, And as we go through these seasons, we can learn a lot about who we are and how we're going to be moving forward. You know, but as life changes, as it throws different curveballs that you have to deal with, you continue to press forward. Um, and this week, it was just some family things, some personal things that were challenging, and by the grace of God, I'm here this morning with an, hopefully an encouraging word for us all. Um, so I hope that we've come excited to hear that truth. You know, as we've been continuing to go through the prophetic books, um, they're just, you have to treat them a little bit differently. You know, we've seen some powerful warnings for the city of Nineveh, for the Assyrians, for this time period. Again, this book is one of the most descriptive in terms of the anger and the wrath of God that you can see. Um, And for this final chapter that we go over today, we're going to see some continuation of what has already been said in terms of the battles, uh, in terms of the warnings that are given to the people. And there's a lot of different ways that we can divide up the chapter. Um, different things that we can focus on. I'm going to focus on four different areas today within the text uh, to break that down. You know, and as I've been studying, I've found that it's a lot more poetic than I ever thought it would be. I see a lot of different things in there. Uh, we talked about last week how there's rhetorical devices that are being used, sarcasm as taunts for the Assyrians. There's songs that are within this as well. And then, of course, the connection to Jonah, which is very appealing. Um, you know, and as we study the Word of God in deeper ways, it's exciting to see those elements come out. It's exciting to go a little bit more in depth, and I hope that you are picking up on that as well. Today we're going to be building on some of the points that we've already talked about in the last two weeks, so look for those repetitions as we read through. Try to see that continuity uh, within the text as we look at the different warnings and descriptions. Um, There's also going to be a focus on judgment for for that people group, but then a warning for us in the future groups that we need to be paying attention to. So as we read through today, just kind of pay attention to those things because it's all meant to bring about a a form of repentance to our hearts through the graphic nature that's being described. So let's take some time this morning and read chapter three in the book of Nahum. It says, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel. Galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Hosts of slain. Heaps of corpses. Dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. Graceful and of deadly charms. Who betrays nations with her whorings. The peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness, all kingdoms at your shame. 
I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I see, where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, the water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit, put in Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed into pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouths of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take off the take hold of the brick mold. There will there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like a locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like the, the clouds of locusts settling on the fences. In a day of cold, when the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Father, as we close down this book, I pray that you would keep our our hearts and minds focused to your truths, that we can see your warnings uh, for our own lives, uh, for our own growth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so looking at this chapter, we see that it starts with a woe. Now, you would almost think that a woe would be best used in the first chapter, more of the opening uh, type of thing. But instead, it's placed in the middle of the four announcements. As we said last week, the announcements are marked by the term behold. So this is kind of in the middle of those where he uses this woe. And a woe is used in prophecy to foretell doom Uh, upon people. Many times it's used against foreign nations, but woes have been used against the Israelites. Jesus has the the chapter of woes in Matthew 23 towards the Pharisees and the leaders there as well. Usually a woe will have two parts. Um, You will have the accusation against the people for what they've done to provoke that doom. And then you have the punishment that's declared. What's going to happen because of those actions from the people? Woe brings about this sense of impending doom. It's a cautious type of feeling that should be coming upon you. You know, you think about taking a new driver. You know, this morning I had Noah drive. You take a new driver out on the roads, and aside from that imaginary brake that you wish was on your side, I'm sure maybe you calmly will say, slow down, stop, 
That's how it comes out. It's never like, whoa, what are you doing? (laughs) Whoa brings about this sense of, unless something changes, something bad is going to happen. Okay, so that's what's being used here in this first verse. And look at that first verse. Woe to the bloody city. That's a fun description, isn't it? Wouldn't you want to be known by that? You know, in America, we have that revolving city. Every year, they, they name the murder capital of the United States. And it revolves from city to city based on how many homicides they have. And you think about national politics for a moment, and you think of the capital cities of nations. Normally, the way that the, the nation's capital goes is how the nation goes, right? So you think about statistics in Washington, D.C. Now, it's not as bad as it used to be, for sure. In the 90s, Washington, D.C. was the murder capital. They had very violent crimes. A lot of that had to do with cocaine being introduced in the 80s and the decisions of those leaders um, back in those times. And it was a bloody city at that time. And you could see similarities to other national capitals in terms of crime rates, in terms of the violence that can be found within that. Nineveh, Nineveh being the capital city of the Assyrians is referenced here. And it's said to be full of lies and plunder. Again, more fun comparisons as we think about politics and lying and plunder, corruption. Then you skip down to verse 4, and you can see the other half of the reason for this woe. You know, the countless whorings of the prostitute, the graceful and deadly charms, betraying other nations, getting them to go away from whatever they might have believed and into the occult or whatever it was that the Assyrians were proclaiming in terms of their own might. If you recall, in week one, I said there was two reasons why um, they were facing this judgment. One was because of their idolatry, and the other was because of what they did to other people in terms of how they get the nickname of a bloody city what they do to the other people. So they are being judged for these reasons because they are full of lies, they're plundering, they're stealing from other nations, and they're full of blood. Now you could make the argument, well, the Assyrians are just pagans anyway to begin with, right? Sure. But as pagan as they were, a hundred years earlier during the time of Jonah, they repented. At whatever level of forgiveness it was, they believed in the God of Israel and they repented at that time. Then through their conquests, well, God uses them then to judge the northern kingdom of Israel. And through the conquests that they have, they begin to build up in their military might. They begin to build up in their pride and they go astray. This is one of the the chief causes in terms of the harlotry of the people. Verses 2 and 3 continue to describe the battle and the destruction of Nineveh. Notice in verse 3 you have four expressions to emphasize the dead bodies. Four times he makes reference to the dead that's going to be in the cities. Emphasizing the scene. Again, a depiction that's very similar to what we talked about last week. You know, when we talked about the announcements of judgment, we said that it was marked off by the term behold, and there was one at the end of the previous two chapters, and there's two in chapter three. So from verses five through verse 
um, 12 will be the first segment, and then verses 13 through 17-ish will be the second segment, and I'll kind of cover both of those segments. You know, you look at verses 5 through 7, again, just like we talked about last week, we want to make notice of the first person being used, even though God is using the agents of the Babylonians and the Medes to punish and bring judgment down upon um, the Assyrians, we want to understand that he is intimately involved, that he will be exposing their identity, their infidelity, that he will show their nakedness to the nations. He will shame them in front of them. This proud nation of Assyria would be publicly shamed and disgraced. I'm sure it's something they, they never thought would happen. You know, they were a young lion, right? They were on the top of the food chain. Who else could be their opponent? Who could bring them down? Nobody, nobody's going to be capable of dethroning them. And here's God saying, I'm going to be your opponent. And he rhetorically asks them, are you better than Thebes? Are you better than Egypt? Are you better than Put and Libya? All put together. These former world powers. Look at what happened to them. Where are they today? Their men went off in chains. Exile. Their babies dashed against the rocks to cut off their lineage. What you are putting your hope into, in terms of strength, is a joke to me. You will try to hide from me. You will try to seek refuge from your enemies, but that will not save you. I am coming for you. It is your time of judgment. As I said last week in that quote, good times can make weak men. Corrupt leaders can lead people away from things of the Lord. Leaders that think just because they're leaders that the people will listen to them at all times, at all commands. These commands that are usually at preserving the leader's lives. But at the time of judgment, it's going to be an every man for themselves type of situation. And they're going to be upended very quickly. You know, as I contemplated this message this week, I wrestled through a lot of different things. Uh, there was one thing I was starting to wrestle through in terms of articulation. I thought, finally, I've got an articulation. And I started going through it, and I started typing it out, and I got to another dead end. So then I just had to delete that half page that I wrote because it wasn't ready yet. It's close. But I wrestled through things. Uh, things like in Romans 1, where it talks about, you know, how no one is without excuse understanding what that means tying that to the understanding as you read through Jonah and you see the repentance of these people and you begin to struggle that how within one to two generations this nation is facing a disaster a hundred years they go from repentant hearts in a city of 120,000 to the top of the food chain in a city over 300,000 conquering other nations to being wiped out because of their whoring after other things. And I sit here and I look at the state of our nation and I can see the writing on the wall. It doesn't look good. I sit here and I look at our church who just celebrated an anniversary since our plant. A denomination who's going down a, a path in good faith but will upset many churches cause conversations to be on those topics rather than on the gospel message. 
something that can cause a split in the denomination. And it made me think, how many generations do we have? What are we pursuing that is kingdom-minded? What are we pursuing that is just more of the status quo, more isolation, just keep to ourselves? What are we pursuing that's antithetical to the Bible? I look at churches, some of which are dying off because of old age and leaders not being raised up to be called to these congregations. I look at churches whose pastors and denominations that are promoting things like Jesus was drag. And like Phineas, I fight off the urge to spear somebody to the altar of whatever God they're worshiping. I look to this nation and the way that they're moving away from a repentant heart and fully embracing hedonism and selfishness. And I can't help but think, how long, O Lord? And we can bemoan our nation, our leaders, our denominations. It's easy to point blame at others. But then I look to my own life, the things that I'm pursuing individually as a leader. I look at the scope of what it is to lead a church in this culture, and it gets easily overwhelming. I can look at my own failures. I can go down roads that lead to depression and wonder, okay, who's going to spear me for something I say? And that question from chapter one keeps coming back to my mind. Who can stand before the indignation of God? And we know the answer to that, right? No one. But then one of the defenses, one of the walls that I build up in my own faith, shattered. A wall that I continually say I don't have, but I have to keep in check. Faith in my own faith. Because, I mean, surely... We can stand because of the grace of God, right? But that's missing the point here. I mean, if I'm gaining confidence in myself because of that, I'm in danger of setting myself up as an idol. Where, yes, it's true that we have confidence to stand before God because of the grace of God. But we don't boast in ourselves. We boast in Christ. And it's a hard thing to articulate because I don't want to swing too far to the other pessimistic side where everything is a woe because we have joy and we have confidence in our faith. But oftentimes we make our faith about us. And that's what I want us to be warned about because we're going to face hardships. We're going to face trials in this life. And we face them because we have the grace of God who gives us strength to take the steps, who gives us strength for that next breath. See, this is a type of prophecy that we see in Nahum, which, which puts us in a deep place of repentance before a holy and just God. For those times of pride where we're lifting ourselves up, thinking that we have everything figured out, where we're demanding things to be our way because, gosh darn it, we're right. And we're trusting in ourselves rather than what the word of God says rather than fighting for things to be done in his way. The Bible is very clear what God does to the strong and the proud. He humbles them. We should see that in the text. 
the next segment from 13 to 17, starting with that next behold. You know, 17 is kind of a transition based on who it's addressed to. So it kind of goes with this segment and then transitions into the next section with 18. But in this segment, you see the behold, um, and it takes us back to the scenes of the battle, the things that are going on in the city of Nineveh. And you see how the troops are being described as women. And it's a reference to them being as weak as women. Now, I know it's not profitable in this day and age to speak of the differences between (laughs) men and women, But it seems that we are so concerned in our culture about equity and inclusion and tolerance that that becomes our focal points. And they drift off into the areas of the absurd. Common sense gives way to subjective moral relativism and every changing truth happens because of our feelings. We need to be able to be bold enough to say that there are differences between men and women and thank God that there are. Because this nation is going to continue to push this type of ideology to break people down. To break down our thought processes so that we can believe lies. And honestly, when you see the the deconstruction of ideologies that are so bad out there, just about anybody can come in and take us over at that point. But with this expression, what we want to see and what we want to understand is that the fear that the Assyrians are going to have is going to overwhelm them. It's going to show the difference of strength between the two sides. It's a common metaphor that's used in the prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah both use the same type of thing to describe troops as women. In Isaiah 19.16 and Jeremiah 50.37 and 51.30. The other things that they're holding on to, the gates of the city, the, the things that they're proud of, Um, they're going to be thrown wide open. The whole city is going to be set to fire. Now, you know, it's true, because as the city was excavated in the mid-1800s, they found a big layer of ash that shows that the whole city was set ablaze at one point in time. And then the way that this is described is that the fire fire would devour them. You think of fire. It is all-consuming. It consumes everything in its path. He then takes that same analogy and he draws in locusts as well to show the same similarity of how they are going to be devoured, how, how they are going to be wiped out as a people, as a city. You can look to the book of Joel. He also details invading armies to be like locusts as well. Um, And then in an ironic way, Nahum is telling the Ninevites to also multiply like locusts because they're probably going to think that if we have more numbers, that will help us. And Nahum just, he plays on that irony. He plays on what their strengths are and says, you do whatever you can. You're going to be devoured. One commentator puts it this way. He says, how silly it is to trust in false securities How unwise is it to presume that somehow we are less vulnerable than those before us who have been judged for exactly the same sins that we presently engage in and refuse to repent of? God is no respecter of persons or nations. He cannot be partial to any and still be true to his holy character. No nation is invincible. If it has defied God and his laws, it will suffer judgment unless it repents now. But... 
because we live in America, because we were founded on Christian principles, we're going to be okay. God's going to spare us, right? How did that work for his own people? Yes, God says, I will leave a remnant. But they still went to exile. Just because we might believe that God is on our side does not mean we won't go through uncomfortable times because as a nation, we are going down the road that we're going. Those remnants lost everything. They went into exile. They were forced into trying to accept pagan ideologies. Think of Daniel and his friends and how they had to stand for the truth of what God was proclaiming in the face of death. The culture is going to continue to push against the Christian gospel. Freedoms that we so easily enjoy will be lost because churches are folding to the woke culture and they're not preaching the word of God. Instead, they're trying to preach tolerance and acceptance and trying to fit in. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. And the world will continually move the goalposts and change definitions in ways that make the church constantly shuffle, not knowing what to say. But as we placate to the world, we lose our identity in Christ. The church is supposed to look different than the world. And if we think that we're not being influenced by the culture, it's a ridiculous thought. And just because we acknowledge that point doesn't mean that we're safe or that we're on the right side of, of history of the argument. We need to cut the arrogance out of our hearts and minds. Because how many times are we, are we relying on the experts rather than the word of God? And I mean experts in any field. How often are we saying things in the Bible don't apply to us because it doesn't line up with a certain theology that we want to hold on to? Is our final standard a pastor, a book, an author, a celebrity, or is it the very word of God? It's a rhetorical question where the answer should be obvious. But the question is meant to pry deeper beyond the Sunday school answer of Jesus to get us to truly live out what we say we believe to practice what we preach as for me I pray that I present the word of God correctly but I also pray that you know that I don't hold all the answers and that I make mistakes we need to pay attention to the warnings that are in the Bible and we're fools if we think that God's judgment won't come for this nation. There are atrocities in our history and in our present. Where we can't take a position of retreat away from the biblical principles to be lived out in our lives. We have to take a stand. And it starts with our lives. Practicing what we preach. I mean, are we okay with sin and doing sinful things? Or do we just say we're not? Why would the world listen to us if we live exactly the same as the world? Again, back to the first week. So often we want the anger and the wrath of God to be poured down and respond in the way that we want 
against the things that we're against. But that calling was for us to understand the forgiveness that we've received in order to obey his commands, to love God and to love others. Now, as a warning, of course, the term love is also being hijacked and the definition is changing. Changing to be more subjective, more sexual in nature versus the understanding of the agape love that we are to show others. Showing signs or showing the grace of agape love should be a natural thing for us. And again, I acknowledge it's easier said than done especially as we step into conflict with people or interact with people who are unsaved and we try to navigate those waters of being in the world but not of the world. It's hard and oftentimes heartbreaking to stand for the truth. But God is our comforter and he gives us the strength. You cannot will somebody to faith, but you can share your faith. You know, as Nahum addresses the people in 17 and 18, these are speaking to the future leaders of Assyria. And he is calling his princes, the scribes, the shepherds, the nobles. They will all either be asleep or not paying attention. They will all be ready to flee at the sight of trouble. You know, when trouble comes, there will be nobody around who comes to their aid. Nobody is going to mourn for them. Instead, people will be celebrating. Everyone who hears of the downfall will clap in celebration. Similar to what's going to happen in Revelation uh, 18 and 19 with the fall of Babylon. Celebrations that happened with the fall of Hitler. Do you ever wonder if there are going to be celebrations at the fall of America? Now this type of celebration would be out of a, a vindictive heart. One that is celebrating for, because of what's been done for them or done to them. And you think about the leaders that are asleep. You think about our current culture. You think about our current leadership. Think about your current self. Are we ignorant? Are we complacent? Are we fully alive in the Lord? You know, another thing that I wrestled with stems from this last question. It's a rhetorical question. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? You know, there are only two books of the Bible that end in rhetorical questions. Can you name the other one? Take a guess. That's right. It's the book of Jonah. So Jonah and Nahum, both books written to the Assyrians, end in rhetorical questions. Twice in chapter 4 of Jonah, God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And then he closes this way. He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, you came into be- it, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Should he not pity them? Rhetorical question 
that pokes at the selfish heart of the prophet who wants to control the mercy of God. And in a century's time, that question changes to for upon whom has, your, has not come your unceasing evil. Now you read those two back to back like that and a natural question can arise. See what happens when you pity evil people? Was Jonah right? Again, a rhetorical question that we should know the answer of. A question that exposes our own ideas of judging God. To rather side with the prophet Jonah than the word of God. To think that we know better than what God knows in terms of mercy and who deserves it and who doesn't. Who can stand before the indignation of God? Who is able to say that they are not evil in God's eyes, apart from the blood of Christ which covers sin? The reasons that God brought judgment to Nineveh are the same reasons that any nation would fall. He is humbled, and he will humble similar powers. Any nation that lusts after domination, power, greed, violence, brutality, oppression, abusing, abusing their power, worshiping things other than God, will share none of his fate. But we need to take heart that God is slow to anger and that he has appointed a time for his judgment to come. And until that time, we are called to love others and to love God. Understanding that we are in short time and that he has already pitied us by fulfilling his plan of salvation and offering his beloved son as a sacrifice on our behalf. We have received God's mercy. And yet we want to be so arrogant as to hold on to it for ourselves. As believers, we see the wrath of God coming. We see in his word the warnings that are given, the woes that are given for this culture and for this people. Are we cheering it on? Are we egging it on? Or are we proclaiming his repentance? Are we preparing hearts? Are we warning people of the upcoming doom? Someone once loved us enough to share the gospel message. And we sit here today, beneficiaries of that, worshiping the true God. For years, I always was puzzled how the American army would just drop flyers and pamphlets out of airplanes in foreign countries saying, hey, we're going to bomb you soon, so you might want to get out. I mean, why would you do that? You're in war until I realized that I'm a pamphlet from God. Sent out, dropped from wherever, to land wherever, to tell people, hey, God's judgment's coming. You need to repent, and you need to understand what he has done for you in terms of salvation. It might seem like a ridiculous strategy, but it's life-changing for that one person. Woe to the unsaved, because judgment is coming. Repent and turn to the Lord to be saved. Let's pray. Father, as we 
read through these prophetic books and we can see the errors of nations in history. We can see the errors of our own nation. We can see how, as a culture, we are falling away from you. Many times, Lord, we can just think it is overwhelming and that it's too much for one person. But Lord, you have given us a voice. You have given us your word to guide us. You have given us your spirit to give us strength in the words to say. Like Moses, we can come up with a million excuses. But like Moses, Lord, I pray that we go. I pray that we can be used by you in strong ways to, to spread your truth, to spread your gospel message. That people would look at our lives individually, that they would look at this church and say that we are different than the world. That we follow you. We don't follow a pastor. We don't follow the latest fad or the newest trend. That we follow hard after you. So Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts of pride, of arrogance, of ignorance. I pray that you would convict us of the sin that so easily can entangle us. pray for forgiveness for each one here. Lord, that we can experience um, that, that forgiveness freshly today. That we can repent and turn from the ways of the world. Lord, the enemy's not going to sit still for, for that. So I just pray for protection. I pray for strength. I pray that we can encourage one another to grow closer to you for the purpose of being kingdom-minded and advancing your kingdom forward. Lord, I thank you for where you have each one of us today. And I pray that we can be used greatly by you. In Jesus' name I pray.